Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma. Today we are going to look at something called the Ganaka Mogalana Sutta. There was a person called the Ganaka Mogalana. So that's how the sutta got its name. It's typical of Buddhist scriptures and Buddhist culture really to not to not put too much emphasis on naming things. The suttas don't have to have flowery or inspiring names. Inspiration is can be useful, but it can also be misleading. Sometimes we become attached to names. It's always interesting when you name a new monk, the reactions. Sometimes the monk reacts and becomes very proud or maybe doesn't like their new name. I once had the case where the, the lay community reacted quite violently to the naming of a monk. Named a monk after a very famous arahant, Mogaraja. Very famous in the time of the Buddha. Anyway, it caused quite a kerfuffle because people didn't understand where the name came from. So this sutta is called Ganakamogalana Sutta, but we're not going to worry too much about the sutta. What we're most interested in is the the Dhamma in it. But Ganakamogalana gets mentioned because he asks a, a good question. Ganakamogalana was a Brahmin, which means he would have been a a priest of some sort, or someone involved with the practice of performing important rituals, rituals that were thought to be important, and having spiritual learning and understanding of the order of society and so on as accords with the Brahman, Brahmanic religion. But it wasn't really a religion. You could, you could say that it was, uh, they had codes, it wasn't a religion in the sense that uh, they tried to separate themselves from all other teachers. It was just religious in a way. They were religious people. Because he, they would come to people like the Buddha and ask them questions, it, it seems. Now maybe not all of them, but he asked, a, he was interested in the Buddha's teaching. And he considered, I think they would consider the Buddha It's not going to work.
Sorry about that. We're still live. Okay. Anyway, enough about Brahmins. He asks a question of the Buddha. He says, if you look at this, uh, this building, so the Buddha was staying in a place called Pubarama. Pubarama was, Puba means in the east, or it means the, uh, well, I guess it means east. It was in the east of Sa uh, Sawati. And it was it was uh, built, paid for by Visakha, who was a very famous lay disciple of the Buddha. Um, anyway, that's where they were staying, and it was so she made this big building for the Buddha to live in. And so, Ganaka Moggallana points to the building that they're sitting in, and he says, "You look at this building, and you can see a gradual process involved." Um, actually, he says about the stairs. I'm not quite sure, but it seems there seems to be a in, bit of interpreting here. But he looks at the staircase and he says, "You look down to the last step of the staircase, and there's a progression there." Right. Uh, so he starts to, starts the conversation off talking about progressions. Now the commentary says it actually refers to the building of the building. As you build it, you have to first lay down the foundation and then this and this. So you can look at a building and you can say, wow, there were steps involved with building this building. Uh, and then he says, among Brahmins like me, we have a gradual process of becoming a Brahmin or of, of progressing as a Brahmin. There's study. First you study the Vedas and and you study the commentaries on the Vedas, and they have all these texts that you would have to study, and then you'd have to learn how to debate and how to explain and so on. And he says, or archers. You see, you look at archers, and they have to train. First they put the, the target close, and then farther and farther, and then they have moving targets and so on. He says, with accountants, there's also training involved, many years of training to become an accountant. Uh, make him count, take the apprentice and make him count one, one, two, twos, three, threes, four, fours, five, fives, and so on. And he says, now is it possible, is it possible to describe in Gotamas, Gotamas, the name of the Buddha, Gotama's sasana is dhamma and discipline. Is it possible to describe a gradual process? So this um, this sutta actually I think is quite useful. It's not unique. There are many examples of very similar treatments, and there shouldn't be a lot to surprise someone who's read a lot of the Buddha's teaching if they read this text, but it's uh, exemplary of this description of the paths. Now, a lot of these you'll notice are about path, a description of the path, and I think the one last week was uh, was about the path, but in a different way. So here we're talking about the, the gradual process of becoming 
really of becoming a meditator and of becoming proficient in meditation. From the very beginning, when someone comes to you, what's the gradual process of becoming, you might say in some ways, becoming Buddhist, in the sense of being someone who actually follows the Buddhist teaching instead of just says, I'm Buddhist and I believe in Buddhism and so on. And so it's a simple formulation, but I think it's useful to know, and so we won't skip this until we'll talk about this. And so the Buddha describes steps. He describes steps in the Dhamma, and they're particularly appropriate for monks. They're, they're directed towards a monastic community. But you can e easily apply them if you adapt them, and what I'd like to do here is talk about ways that they can be generalized for really anyone who's interested in Buddhism. I think another thing this uh, description does uh, is it helps to to provide a picture, uh, sort of a sense of the bigger picture and the process involved in Buddhism for a newcomer. You know, because there are teachings in different path, different traditions and paths and religions that often talk about states to be realized, but may not have a, uh, a gradual path to lead their step-by-step -step teachings. I mean, even, I would say even in Buddhism, there are some teachers who describe states, but aren't able to describe a gradual process by which to get there. Maybe they themselves got somewhere, but aren't quite clear how to get there. It's important to have this gradual path. Uh, on the other hand, there are teachings in, in different religions, even in Buddhism, that are, rather than having a gradual process, they, uh, they describe a first step. They give preliminaries, or they give basic teachings. Right? Like There's a lot of Buddhists who are caught up in practicing metta, which is great, but when that becomes your primary practice, you're not really going to get far, very far. Um, well, you're, you're not going to get to Nibbāna through that. You're not going to become free from suffering. Or even more, a lot of Buddhists will just, and teacher Buddhist teachers will just teach people to take the refuge in the Buddha, to practice good, good deeds, charity, and so on. They keep the five precepts, and that's it. And they teach that again and again and again, and, and it, it doesn't lead anywhere, because that's just the first step. So here we have steps, and it's important to keep to remember them, to pay close attention, and to actually put them into practice, so that step by step we can reach the goal. So the first step the Buddha describes, of course, is precepts, keeping rules. I'd say living a disciplined life, having guidelines for your life. Having rules, I think, is probably a good way to describe it. Having rules is interesting. We had we were talking about evil in class uh, this week, in my religious studies class, and uh, it was an interesting debate about good and evil, because evil is uh, a license. Studying Simone Weil, if you, anyone knows her, probably not, but French philosopher. And she says evil is a license. And it was interesting because evil is therefore 
limitless. There's, evil doesn't put any limits on your uh, behavior. Good is rather, in some sense, confined. Good is, res in, a, in a way, restrictive, and that's why people aren't keen on it. Because if you don't have rules, you can do anything and go anywhere, and that's how the world lives, right? For the most part, our rules are vague and, and unclear, and so you easily have people become murderers and thieves and, and so on. Excited about evil in many cases because they don't have a clear sense of the, of the usefulness of rules. Rules provide, you could say they provide a, a direction. If we're talking about a path and we're going somewhere, then, well, you need a, you need a, a road, let's say. And you don't go off the road, because if you go off the road, you'll get lost, you'll get stuck. You might even start going the wrong way. So for monks, there are many, many rules, but you know, for, for, for lay people, I mean, the idea is just to have a sense of this is right to do, this I, I will do, this I will not do. I won't kill, I won't steal, I won't lie, I won't cheat. These are my rules. I won't take drugs or alcohol. That one, last one's a really um, important, especially in modern times when it's become quite accepted and often expected that, every, that people drink alcohol or take drugs in, in certain circles, in certain societies. And so it can be quite a very powerful um, powerful determination to say to yourself, I will no longer, as a rule, I will not take drugs or alcohol. And these are things that keep us pointed in the right direction. Because if you engage in all of these, of course, you'll get pointed in the wrong direction quite easily. You don't have a rule against killing. Anytime you engage in killing, it's leading you in the wrong direction. It's leading your mind towards corruption and, uh, and deterioration and so on. So it's always the first step. Before you're even going to talk about meditation, you really should be clear about your your direction and therefore the rules that you're going to live by. These the five precepts. For someone who's really serious, you would want to keep the eight precepts. So not eating too much, not uh, engaging in entertainment, and only sleeping six hours or less, sleeping on the floor, that kind of thing. So that's the first one. The second one, he says, so when, when they've accomplished that, once a person is more unethical, then we teach them to guard their senses. Second step. Once you're settled in what's right and what's wrong, this is do this, don't do that, then you start to, really it's, an, it's the next step in, in terms of action, in terms of our relationship with the world is the senses because once you've stopped doing any doing outward bad deeds stop killing stealing lying cheating even do, even engaging in slight wrong deeds you you guard the senses to keep from the 
arising of the emotions and the, the desires and aversions that would again lead you to do or say things that you'd regret that would cause you suffering or cause other people suffering. And so guarding the senses really is, is it's very central to our practice as Buddhists and especially as Buddhist meditators. A big part of the, the first steps in the meditation course where we teach the meditator to be mindful when you see anything, say to yourself, seeing, seeing. When you hear, say, hearing, hearing. This is guarding the senses. Guarding your mind from getting caught up in what you see. Don't just look at it and process all these things and, and get caught up in, in emotions, likes and dislikes. Seeing. When you see, remind yourself. That's just seeing. When you hear, that's hearing. When you smell, smelling. Taste, tasting. Feel, feeling. Buddha put a lot of emphasis on the senses. Let's seeing just be seen. Let what is seen just be what is seen. Nothing more. Not this, not that, not me, not mine, not good, not bad. Just seeing. Of course, there are other aspects of guarding your senses. When you walk, not looking around everywhere and trying to see everything. When you walk, keeping your mind on your feet when you walk and so on. That's guarding the eyes. Guarding the ears means, well, maybe don't burn on music or uh, go to places where there's uh, sounds that can distract you, but uh, etc. But, but most important and, and much more important, much more to be emphasized is being mindful, guarding with mindfulness. Because you can't always control sounds. You can't, of course, control sight. You can't close these doors. Even though you might run away from all the good and bad things that you might see and hear and so on. You can't run away from them. And so ultimately you have to be mindful of whatever you experience. Hearing, hearing, seeing, seeing. So that's the second step. The third step, he says, is being moderate in eating, which I always was surprised at because it seems like to single out eating, why, why is that so important to single out when there's many other things? We have many other activities, but when you boil it down, really, we don't live our lives. Eating is really, it's really quite significant. It's the only thing that if you don't do, you're, you're, is one of the few things that if you don't do, you're going to die. Eating, drinking, and breathing, I think. There's not much else. But eating is particular because you know, it, it's a, we have a strong and long relationship with food that uh, is quite caught up in likes and dislikes. And, and not even just the likes and dislikes of the flavor, but the fear of not getting enough food. Now, if you've ever been hung, gone hungry and just felt the horror of the fact that today I'm not going to be able to eat because I don't have any money for food or that sort of thing, or because I'm a Buddhist monk and I didn't get alms food today, that sort of thing. If you've ever been through that, you realize how attached we are to food. 
but also what a relief it is to let go. There was um, this book, uh, George Orwell, I think, down and out in Paris and London. He got very poor. He, he managed to accidentally become impoverished, and he realized how f liberating it is to be poor because you no longer you know, you no longer have to worry about falling there's nothing to, there's nothing for you to guard when you've reached the bottom you know you can't go any lower he said so moderation in food is is important to help us deal with this very basic uh, addiction and and obsession with food i mean there are other other addictions and obsessions that are also useful but useful to to look at of course but food is the only one that we can't do without you, know, you can avoid many other addictions music sex those kinds of things but food you still have to live with so definitely bears important mention the other thing is if you eat too much it's very hard to meditate here you become you get lazy so monks only eat in the morning Meditators as well. Our meditators here are only eating in the morning. It keeps you from doing a lot of physical labor. I mean, that wouldn't really be possible, but it also keeps you from getting lazy and, and, and drowsy. And it keeps you sharp and it keeps you on your toes. Sometimes you get hungry, that can happen. It's an important part of the training to be aware of. We could expand this, of course. Be aware of our food. Be aware of the things we use. The, what it really means is the things that are necessities of life. Food, clothes. Why? Why do we wear the clothes we do? Why do we wear makeup? Why do we put makeup on? Why do we wear a hat or this or that? Well, I'm buying this shirt or these pants why am i what, what are the why am i buying these ones is it because they're cheap or because they're sturdy or is it because they make me look good because i like them because i like the color uh, medicine are we using medicine when when it's important to use it or are we just using it all the time whenever we have a small pain or whenever we have a, a small bout of this or that and uh, shelter. Why do we live where we live? Our bed. Why do we have a bed in the first place? I think there is something about if you're higher up, there's less dust. That might be useful. But why do we have such soft beds? Why can't we sleep on a simple bed? Sleep on the carpet. Meditators will sleep on us. A, a thin mat. I sleep on the carpet. It's done that for a long time. It helps you wake up in the morning. Very important. So those kinds of things. The, 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 the basics of our life, once we've cleared away all the bad stuff, how are we living our lives? Our daily life, is it conducive to mindfulness and awareness or is it conducive to laziness and addiction and, and, and clinging? Looking at the things that we use can be quite useful. So that's number three. Number four. Number four is the schedule. 
having a schedule, having a plan. So for um, an intensive meditator, the Buddha says, I've talked about this before, he gives a schedule. He says you sleep four hours. I'm boiling it down. He, 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 do, he goes a little bit further. He describes it more in more detail. But basically he says you sleep four hours. And the rest of the time is all just walking and sitting. And so a very simple schedule. He says in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, walking and sitting. Purifying your mind of obstructive states. Purifying your mind of bad habits, really. And changing our thought process. The way we live our lives ordinary, the, the course of a day. Where does your mind go over the course of a day, right? It's an interesting question that we've probably never thought of in this way. If you were to enumerate the different mind states and the different emotions that went through, what, what does one day look like in the life of your mind? A lot of bad habits we find. Through the meditation, we tend to find our bad habits, and so we purify them. We, we live our lives in this way, walking, sitting, and being mindful. And uh, we purify it. Because we see, oh, this is this, this mind state that's coming up now. Now that I'm mindful, I can see that it's unhelpful. It's a cause for stress for me. And you're mindful and you pay attention to it repeatedly, and you're able to, you're able to change that. Just through seeing it, just through, three, through seeing that it causes you suffering. So that's the schedule, is walking and sitting. Another interesting thing about this is it points out walking, which is a question of many people who I've, I've met. They'll ask, did the Buddha really teach walking, or why, why can't we just sit all the time? The Buddha certainly didn't teach walking, and he's, this passage is repeated in many different places that we should walk and sit in alternation. Because sitting all the time is not healthy for the body, it's not natural, it's not the way of a human being, it's not... Uh, it's not a way of life. Walking and sitting is much more... Walking some, sitting some... It's much more natural, and it's much better for you because it balances. Sitting can often make you tired or, or over-focused, over-concentrated, whereas walking gives you energy, gives you strength. And when you do lie down to sleep, he says, this is ideally, I'm not going to suggest that everyone has to do this, he says, lie down on your side, put one, one leg on top of the other, and note in your mind when you're going to wake up. Say to yourself, okay, in four hours or at this time I'm going to wake up. Meaning that what you should be focused on when you go to sleep is when you're going to wake up. And that's, there's a great power in that, because if you do that, and if you get good at it, you can find that you wake up quite close to when you determine to wake up. It's quite impressive how the mind is able to to time things like that. It keeps you from oversleeping. Good practice.
And then he says, he describes the practice in detail. So he says, be possessed of mindfulness and self-awareness. And he gives this list of, comprehensive list of activities, meaning in all of our activities. And he says, when walking forward, walking back, when looking this way, turning your head and looking, when flexing and extending your arms, uh, when carrying your robes and your bowl, or whatever you carry, when eating, when drinking, when tasting, when swallowing, when urinating and defecating, something that doesn't get mentioned. I think I mention it quite often, or relatively often, but otherwise you don't hear it that often. Urinating and defecating, or to be mindful and self-aware, meaning that mindful and self-aware in everything we do, even urinating and defecating. So this means when you bend, say bending, when you flex, flexing, when you reach, reaching, when you lift, lifting, when you brush your teeth, brushing, brushing, when you chew your food, chewing, chewing, when you swallow, swallowing, when you urinate, well, I'll leave it to you, feeling, there's going to be a lot of feelings in, in this, so. walking, standing, sitting, lying, Falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silence in everything you do, even in talking. When talking, you can be mindful of the movements of your lips. We think that when we're talking, our mind is preoccupied, but it's really not. The mind is involved there, but we're so good at it that we launch the words out of the mouth, and meanwhile, our mind can be focused on our lips. It's interesting practice because you see how Oh, it's not really me talking, it's my body. It's the body, which is also not mine. <coughs> so how many do we have now? We've got a bunch of steps. I'm not going to count. we got the next step. The next step is having been one possessed of mindfulness. I mean, this is really the core of our practice, and particularly when you're not just meditating. But the core is to be mindful, meditating, not meditating, to be mindful in whatever you do. Watching the stomach, that's being mindful. When you say rising, when you say falling, so on. But the next step, he says, is, is seclusion. Going to a secluded place. So for monks, well, find, go to the forest, a tree, root of a tree, some big trees, you can just sit at the root a mountain, a ravine, a cave, a charnel ground. Charnel ground is where they would just throw dead bodies. It's a good place to develop dispassion and to develop uh, a sense of urgency, seeing all the dead people and realizing this body is going to be next. A jungle thicket, an open space, or a heap of straw, anywhere that's occluded. Your room, if you you got a bedroom, take the bed out and make it a meditation room and sleep on the floor, then you've got a great space for meditation. You don't need a heap of straw. Carpet will do fine. 
I mean, this goes without saying that seclusion is very important because of the difficulty in being mindful among society, uh, in uh, an urban setting or, or a society of people, but also society of objects, you know, just being surrounded by such um, all of the sights and sounds and smells and so on. Go into seclusion because your 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 mind's much clearer. Everything is much simpler, and so learning how the mind works is going to be much easier. But that's seclusion. After seclusion, there's a keeping in mind that we're, all the other steps are still in effect. You haven't stopped. One thing I, I should point that out is that okay, you can't say, "Okay, I've kept." moral precepts. Now I'm going to do step two and forget about step one. It's not like that. These are cumulative. So all the other steps, the keeping the precepts, the guarding the senses, the uh, being mindful, moderation in eating, being mindful, all of that, these are all still in effect and become secluded. And as you're doing this, once you're secluded, then you can really focus your attention on the next step, which is overcoming the hindrances. Liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. Start working on the mind. Start looking at the negative habits, the things that cause us problems, keep us from finding peace, keep us from seeing clearly, keep us from being free from suffering. And so, I mean, the process of meditation will do this, but it's important also to address them directly. If you like something, say, <coughs> say to yourself, liking, liking. If you dislike something, disliking, disliking. If you're drowsy, say drowsy, drowsy. If you're distracted, thinking a lot, d distracted, distracted. If you have doubt or uncertainty, doubting, doubting. All of these take away from the strength of mind. They take away from our presence. Uh, and so that's important to be, to deal with them, to overcome them. Once you overcome them, you find that your mind settles down. And the Buddha says you enter into these things called jhanas, which can be interpreted in different ways and certainly are by every different teacher who talks about them. But really it means stages of depth of practice. So we'll just say your mind becomes more clear, you become more mindful. You have, in the end, mindfulness due to equanimity, the Buddha says here. So that is the really the pinnacle. When you get to the point where you have true mindfulness due to equanimity, it means you've seen, you've looked through everything, gone through it all, to the point where there's nothing, you see that there's nothing better than anything else. It's not an intellectual realization, it's really a visceral realization. that You've just done so much observing <coughs> through being mindful that you see no other nothing of any uh, any use besides being present mindful and so that's the highest state and he says this is my instruction because when you get to that point the next step is is enlightenment right once you're equanimous and mindful and really observing everything just arising and ceasing as it is that's when the mind becomes receptive to letting go. 
And the next step, of course, is enlightenment. So he says, this is where we get to. This is what I teach people. This is gradual training. And so, and that's it. That's really the teaching of the sutta. But uh, the ending of the sutta, Ganaka Moggallana asks him, he says, so when uh, when you teach this way, when you give them this this gradual practice, do they all become enlightened? Or does someone, does someone, do they all attain Nibbana, freedom from suffering, or does some not attain it? And the Buddha says, what do you think he says? He says, when they are thus advised and instructed by me, some attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not. And he says, well, the path, you say this path leads to Nibbana. You're here guiding people to Nibbana. Why is it that some of them don't make it? And the Buddha says, I mean, it's, it's quite, an, quite a, not a very difficult question, I don't think, if you, if you consider it carefully. He says, uh, here we are in Sawati, which is really in the north of India, center north, sort of. And uh, suppose someone wanted to go to Rajika, which is a little further east. And uh, someone came to you and said, hey, how do you get to Rajika? And you, you told him, well, this road goes to Rajika, follow it a while, you'll get to a village. Go a little further, you'll see this town. Go this way, you'll see Rajgaha. Finally, you get to Rajgaha with its lovely parks, groves, meadows, and ponds. Rajgaha was a lovely city. Still is lovely. A little bit different from the time of the Buddha, though. Uh, and then, and, and... You told him all this, sent him on his way, and he went the wrong way. He went west instead. You gave him good directions, but he didn't listen to them. Went the wrong way. Uh, and then you, a second person came, and you told them the same thing. And then they did follow the road and became to Rajika. Now, would you blame? Uh, would you blame the, the guide, or would you wonder what is the reason? I said, no, there's no reason. How could I? How could I? What could I say about that? I'm just the guide. And the Buddha said, "Yes, same as for practice. Nibbana exists, and the path to Nibbana exists. And I am present as the guide. Yet, some of them become enlightened, and some of them do not. And then he says, Magakai Tathagato. I am one who." explains the path. Tathagata is the one who is just someone who explains, describes or details what is the path. This is important. You, know, you can't rely upon, it's a simple teaching, you can't rely upon the Buddha, you can't rely upon Buddhism to save you. You can't rely on your meditation even. You can't say, okay, here I am meditating, it's going to work. It's not just about meditating, it's about you now, your state of mind at every moment, what you are doing now, because that now is when we do work, when, when we act. And so 
it is you who have to do the work it's you who have to follow the path and then Kanaka Moggallana praises the Buddha and his disciples and that's really the end of the sutta so that's the Dhamma for tonight another description of the path I think that's quite useful something to keep in mind some of these things uh, should be familiar but um, certainly always good to go over the things that are important I mean, it gives you a clear picture really in a way of what is Buddhism if you ask someone asks you what is Buddhism that fairly simple description there of the gradual practice is as good a description as any it doesn't have everything in it but it's very practical so that's the Dhamma for tonight thank you all for tuning in wish you all the best <laughs>